The tales on this podcast are dark, sometimes scary, and full of adult themes. As a warning, the original story of Ursa Major features rape. Please exercise caution for children under 13. Callisto gave a final push through the curtain of vines blocking her path forward and found herself standing in an ancient grove. It looked like no one had disturbed it for centuries. No man, no beast, not even a god. The light barely filtered down through the thick canopy of trees. But where it did, it illuminated a lush floor covered in moss. It was beautiful and so peaceful. The perfect place for a huntress to let her guard down after a long day stalking prey. Or so Callisto thought as she unstrung her bow and lay down her quiver of arrows. But high above that darkening grove, a violent, impulsive force was watching her with greed and hunger. Because Jupiter wanted Callisto, and when Jupiter wanted something, he took it. I'm Vanessa Richardson. You're listening to Tales, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Wednesday, we dive into the dark origins of another fairy tale. You can find all episodes of Tales and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is part of our Summer Solstice Takeover. Over the next two weeks, we'll be digging into the myths and legends of the stars. Check out mythical monsters, superstitions, and mythology for more of the special. Today on Tales, we're exploring the ancient legend behind Ursa Major. Before she was a constellation, Ursa Major was a huntress named Callisto. She pledged her loyalty to Diana, goddess of the hunt. But then she was swept up into the violent, vindictive relationship between Jupiter and Juno, king and queen of the gods. Coming up, the Huntress is the Hunted. Ancient Greek myths are some of the oldest tales there are. Many of them were first written out by both ancient and classical Greek writers, and later interpreted and rewritten by Roman poets like Ovid and Virgil. But they're really far older than that. They come from a long oral tradition that in some cases has Paleolithic roots. Perhaps it's no surprise that such ancient tales have close ties to the skies. For early civilizations, paying attention to the heavens could mean the difference between life and death. The movements of the planets augured changing seasons and helped determine when to bring in the harvest. The positions of the stars were crucial for navigation, and the beauty of the sky was a reminder that the world was a magical place, full of meaning even when human life was difficult and short. So the Greeks associated their gods with this powerful sky and its planets. When the Romans adopted the Greek pantheon, they made the association even clearer by giving many of the gods the same names as the planets they were linked with. This tradition carried on as more planets were discovered. For example, Jupiter is king of the gods, 
Juno, his queen, shares a name with a large asteroid. And then there are the constellations, like the one we call Ursa Major today. She was catalogued by Greek astronomer Ptolemy in the 2nd century, but it was the Romans who called her Ursa Major, the Big Bear. And she gets her own ancient tale, too. But Ursa Major isn't a goddess, and her tale doesn't just reflect the power of the skies. It also demonstrates the helplessness of the little humans watching them. Because the ancients never promised life was fair, and sometimes the celestial Olympian powers rained down the darkest kinds of violence. Callisto liked to go out and hunt alone sometimes. There was nothing more satisfying than bringing back strange prizes from deep in the forest and laying them at Diana's feet. It made her heart swell to see the goddess smile lazily in response. And when Diana told her she was a perfect handmaiden, Callisto thought she might fall to the forest floor with pleasure. She was so lucky to live amongst Diana's troop of huntresses, but she sometimes wondered if she deserved it, if she was a strong enough hunter or a beautiful enough woman. So again and again, she sought to prove herself. Today, the effort hadn't gone too well. She hadn't found the kind of rare prey that would impress the goddess of the hunt, but she was exhausted. She knew she needed to rest, so she pulled off her dirt-stained tunic and nestled into her mossy bed. The grove grew darker, the forest air filled with the cause of nighttime birds. Callisto closed her eyes. She tried to absorb the peace of these ancient woods. And she began to dream of a tomorrow where she heard her prey from miles away and her arrows struck true. But as Callisto slipped deeper into sleep, her dreams began to change. She was no longer chasing a beautiful stag, with the wind snapping cheerfully at her hair. She was still running, but the stag was gone, and she felt a dark, overwhelming force chasing her. Fear and confusion erupted in her dreaming mind, and abruptly she sat up, suddenly very awake. If hunting alongside a goddess had taught her anything, it was to trust her natural instincts, even in sleep, especially when she was alone in the heart of a forest so ancient that most men feared to hunt here. But as Callisto squinted her eyes into the darkness, looking for a threat, she was surprised to find herself looking at Diana, her own goddess, the woman she'd pledged her loyalty and love to. At least, it looked like Diana, but Callisto felt a strange trembling in the air, an electricity. That wasn't the energy of the hunt goddess, that familiar, proud warmth. It was something powerful, but alien and masculine. Callisto tried to pull herself up out of the moss in confusion, unsure what to say or do. But before she made it to her feet, Diana was by her side, hands on her waist, pulling her back towards the ground and into an embrace. 
At first, Callisto kissed Diana back. She wanted nothing more than the goddess's love, and her heart was pounding with excitement at the thought of Diana's lips on hers. But the feeling of these lips still wasn't right. The feeling of these hands wasn't right either. Callisto pulled away, confusion overtaking her excitement. She tried to ask why Diana had come to find her here, away from all her other handmaidens. But the goddess covered her mouth and wouldn't let her speak. Her hands grew stronger and more aggressive. And then her face changed into a man's face. No, a god's face. This was Jupiter. Callisto's body stiffened with fear and panic. She didn't want this, but his hands were like a vice. She started kicking. She started screaming. Even after her long day hunting, she was strong. Still, she was human. He was a god, king of the gods. He was stronger. And he was willing to use his strength for violence. Callisto's agonized yells played on and on, echoing through the night, as Jupiter took what he had decided was his. After, Jupiter cheerfully kissed Callisto on the forehead and told her she was the most beautiful girl he'd ever touched. Then he suddenly looked a bit nervous and told her that if his wife Juno somehow found her, she should hide. And finally, he disappeared in a crackling eruption of electric air, illuminating the night with tiny sparks of lightning. Callisto, however, wasn't paying attention to any of it. Her eyes were closed. Her hands lay open on the moss, limp like the hands of a dead girl, or so she thought as she tried to move her fingers. She might as well be dead, she felt so empty, like someone had scooped out everything that was inside her and taken it for his own. Even the forest, her own forest, where she'd spent most of her life frolicking and training, it no longer felt friendly and safe. It felt like it was watching her, leering at her. Callisto shivered and tears began streaming down her face, but she slowly pulled herself off the ground. She slipped on her tunic with trembling fingers. She almost forgot to retrieve her bow and arrows, but she scooped them up mechanically at the last moment as she began to walk and walk away from this odious grove and from what had happened there. By instinct, Callisto headed straight back the way she'd come, toward Diana and the women of the hunt. At first, the thought of them felt like the first real breath of air she'd taken since meeting Jupiter. Her legs felt stronger as they pushed through the brush. Her hands were no longer limp and useless. She had a home, somewhere safe, somewhere she could take back her own self with the support of the women who loved her. That would show Jupiter, she thought, anger starting to stir in her chest. But another feeling began to stir there too, something she couldn't quite bring herself to think about head on, fear. Callisto had taken a vow of chastity, like all the maidens of the hunt and Diana herself, the virgin goddess. 
Now that vow was broken, and Diana hated broken vows. Diana might be Callisto's own goddess, the goddess she worshipped, and had devoted her life to serving, might be the most loving, caring goddess, but she could also be moody and irrational, especially when she felt like her rules and boundaries were being challenged. She was, after all, one of the Olympians, a celestial being. Her planet was the moon itself, that untouchable, majestic orb. Of course, she had a bad side, too. A dangerous side, a side that could lash out as violently as Jupiter himself, even at the people she loved most. Coming up, Callisto faces Diana and her wrath. Hi, listeners, it's Carter from Parcast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads, and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals, like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. Callisto hoped to find comfort and safety with Diana and her maidens, but she wasn't so sure that she would. She hadn't given up her chastity willingly. It had been violently ripped from her. But nevertheless, the vow she'd made to Diana was now broken. All she could pray was that the goddess would understand. It was daybreak by the time Callisto arrived at camp. The huntresses were sleepily stretching out sore limbs and getting breakfast going. They cried out cheerfully when they saw Callisto, asking what she'd brought back to impress their mistress today. When she started to blush and turned her face towards the ground, a few of them laughed, slapped her on the back, and told her her beauty was enough. Callisto felt like sinking to the ground then and there and sobbing. She'd never felt less beautiful. But the women were all acting so normal. Perhaps she could just slip back into their world, pretend last night had never happened, forget. The idea was alluring, but then Callisto thought of what would happen if she hid the truth and Diana found it out for herself. The goddess's wrath would be assured. So Callisto bit back her fear and asked the women where she could find Diana. Diana lay by the side of a gurgling stream, trailing her fingers in the water. She didn't look up as Callisto approached, but she lazily murmured, 
What have you brought back for me today, dear girl? Callisto felt bile rising in her throat. Her head felt light. Her limbs felt like jelly. She stood silent for a moment, staring at Diana. But the longer she waited, the worse it would be, she told herself once again. Speak now. So she did. In a rush of half-formed words, she told Diana everything. Diana didn't move as the story unfolded. She stared at the water. Only when Callisto fell into a breathless silence did she finally rise from her seat at the side of the stream and turn to look at her maiden. Her eyes were jet black. Callisto had never seen such a fury there. It was as if her body had grown several feet larger, too, and started to glow with all the light and power of the moon. Callisto felt herself shrink in response. Terror filled her body. Once again, she was faced with a power so great she knew she had no strength to fight it. But this time, she didn't have the will either. Shame and guilt overwhelmed her. She'd never wanted anything more than to please Diana, to be worthy of the goddess. She took down elk, wolves, and bears in her service. She tried above all else to keep her vows. But she failed. And if Diana was ready to strike her down in wrath and end her life, or exact some worse punishment— she was ready. She bowed her head. But then Diana spoke. In a deep, furious growl, one as unfamiliar to Callisto as those black eyes, My father has always wanted what's mine, but not this time. He hasn't won. Callisto slowly lifted her head, eyes widening. Diana growled on, don't ever let yourself think he has, Callisto. He violated you. He hurt you. But you are strong and belong only to yourself and me and the women of the hunt because you chose us, never him. Callisto began to sob. Diana took her into her arms and began to hush the girl. The light of the moon drained from her body, leaving just a faint glow around her beautiful round face. Then she made a solemn promise. We'll protect you. As long as you choose us, we will choose you. Protecting Callisto was, at first, simple. It meant inviting her back into the daily rhythms of the hunt and the forest. Jupiter had taken what he wanted and, as usual, lost interest in his prey. He didn't show up at the women's camps nor try to visit Callisto again. And so Callisto began to regain her sure feet as she navigated through the dense forest. She still stayed with her sisters of the hunt, she no longer ventured out alone, and she still sometimes felt the pangs of horror and emptiness when she lay down to sleep and thought of that night. But she saw peace, like a stag on the horizon, one that she hoped, with the help of her sisters, she would fell. Soon, and then everything would be like before, happy and free. But while Callisto fought her way back to the before, she didn't notice something that was changing in the now. 
in her womb. Diana, who ruled fertility as well as the hunt, did notice. She sensed it, and she knew it was a problem. First of all, it would be a boy. She knew it when she looked at Callisto, and Diana didn't suffer men in her troop of hunters, not even boys, not even baby boys. The whole world was for them. They wouldn't get her hunt, too. But this was an even bigger problem. This was the son of Jupiter, and that would bring Jupiter back to them. He might forget about the women he'd raped, but rarely about the sons he sired. Diana didn't like her father. Fine. He wouldn't hurt the child, though. He liked his children. Juno, however, did not. Not his mortal children. And once Jupiter found this baby, Juno wouldn't be far behind. Nor would her wrath. She already hated that he slept with mortal girls, not only because he was violent toward the ones who didn't want him, but also because his infidelity broke their covenant, and Juno lived by those kinds of rules, those kinds of contracts. They meant everything to her. They made her feel safe and in control. When there was a child as well, that to Juno was the ultimate betrayal, the ultimate broken contract, and she wouldn't just ignore it. Diana frowned, staring into the shadows of the forest, looking for any sign of her fellow gods. They had to get rid of that baby the instant it was born. Callisto eventually noticed the swell of her belly, and at first, she just felt horror. Jupiter had left this piece of himself to fester in her womb. It was disgusting. But slowly, she began to feel differently. This baby came from Jupiter's seed, yes, but it was her body that was nourishing him, her body that took him from nothing more than an odious white liquid to a child, her baby boy. He was born in a camp at the edge of the wood, surrounded by the encouragement of Diana's troop of huntresses. And the moment he arrived, Callisto felt it more strongly than ever. This child was hers. She loved him, and she had a sense deep in her bones. They belonged together. They couldn't be parted. Diana tried to convince Callisto. She explained that Jupiter was coming, and then Juno. But for the first time, the new mother cared about something, or rather someone, more than her goddess. She clutched her baby to her chest. She shook her head. How will Jupiter know he's sired a child? She argued. And if he doesn't know, how could Juno? Anyway, surely even Juno wouldn't harm an innocent baby or take him from his mother. Diana smiled ruefully, as if laughing at Callisto's ignorance about the gods. Then she tried to reason with her one more time. We can still take him to your father, Callisto, before Jupiter and Juno notice him, and your father's a king. The child will be well taken care of. But still, Callisto shook her head, determined... Arcus. His name is Arcus, and I won't abandon him on my father's doorstep. He stays with me. Diana stared at Callisto for a moment, her eyes darkening in the flickering light of the campfire. 
but after a long pause, she laughed a bitter laugh and shrugged. I said I would protect you, Callisto, as long as you chose me. Choose the hunt. Choose the women of the hunt. If you don't choose us, we're leaving. You can face Jupiter on your own. The huntresses followed their mistress's lead. They packed up the camp, and then they left. Callisto felt like her heart was being wrenched in two as she watched them go, but she knew better than to follow. She understood this consequence. She had defied Diana and picked her baby over the goddess. Now she was cast out. But she wasn't as oblivious to the ways of Olympus as Diana had thought, not after what she had experienced, and she knew the goddess was right. She was in danger, and so was her child. So she did the only thing she could think of. She fled deep into the heart of the forest, under the thickest canopy of trees, and hid. But Callisto should have known the forest was a weak defense against the gods. Jupiter had found her there before, and so could Juno. Coming up, Callisto fights for her child against the gods themselves. Now, back to the story. It was a quiet, sunny morning in a deep forest clearing. Callisto was exhausted. She'd spent days on the move, Arcus hidden beneath blankets in her arms. Every time the baby cried, she'd felt utter terror that somehow Jupiter would hear. But it seemed he hadn't, and Callisto was beginning to hope that maybe, this time, the forest was protecting her. And Arcus, her Arcus. She unwrapped the blankets shrouding his little form. The baby no longer just squirmed. Now he reached out his little hands deliberately and touched his mother's nose. She laughed. She'd never felt so much love. The baby gurgled its own little laugh in response. The twin sounds floated up through the trees. They penetrated the canopy, the sky, and then they reached Jupiter's ears. Suddenly, a crackling sound disturbed the air beside Callisto. Particles of light seemed to be coalescing frantically. A strange, hot wind whipped the air, and then suddenly, all went still. Jupiter had arrived. He was grinning, looking not at Callisto, but at the baby in her arms. Her heart pounded, and her adrenaline surged as the god reached out. But he didn't snatch the baby from her arms, nor touch him roughly. Instead, he took Arca's hand gently and cooed, looking for all the world like any human father. Callisto's heartbeat slowed, but she was still tense and alert. She stepped backwards and cleared her throat, Jupiter finally looked from the baby to her and smiled. We've made a baby, beautiful Callisto. He's as pretty as his mother, and I'd wager has some of his father's strength, too. Callisto felt disgust rise in her throat like acid. As if her baby needed strength from this monster, 
Even if today he wore sheep's clothing, she was strong, and she would give Arcas all the strength he needed. But she didn't say that, and she tried to keep her face calm and pleasant, because she was thinking of what Diana had said about Juno. Jupiter wasn't the primary danger, not anymore, and the more quickly and quietly she got through this encounter, the less likely Juno would come and join them. As a harsh, cold wind began to pick up around the trio, Jupiter seemed, belatedly, to have the same thought. His eyes widened, and a guilty look washed across his face. He grabbed Callisto around the shoulders, murmured that they had to hide, and then, with another crackle of lightning, he, Callisto, and baby Arcus disappeared. Callisto felt like she was falling through an endless tunnel of hot air. She clutched at her baby, but she could peer out through the swirling air, too, back into the clearing where she'd been moments before, and she saw something more terrifying even than Jupiter when he'd covered her mouth and prepared to rape her. It was a face, a beautiful face, but the beauty was contorted and twisted with rage. Juno. I know you're here, Jupiter. Juno hissed in a voice that felt as sinewy and cruel as a piece of rope. With that vixen and her son, and don't think I'll rest until I get my revenge. Come out and face me. Jupiter squinted down at Callisto through the wind nervously, as if to say maybe she'll go away. But they both knew that was wishful thinking. So Jupiter let loose a deep, powerful sigh. The god's arm loosened around Callisto's shoulder. The strange falling sensation faded. The wind stilled. They were back in the forest clearing. And they were staring right at Juno. She cackled when she saw them, a cruel, angry laugh. So this is the girl you betrayed me for? Pretty. She stretched out an arm towards Callisto as if to caress her, but she didn't step forward, and she kept talking. Just a girl, though, when you have a goddess for a wife. You always baffle me, Jupiter. Jupiter scowled at his wife and pushed Callisto behind him. This is about us, Juno. Let's not make it about the humans. They're innocent and unimportant. You know that. Juno rolled her eyes. Why should I ignore them? You seem to want them safe, especially that little boy, I'm sure. And I want you to suffer. With that, Juno turned her eyes towards Callisto and Arcus and started dancing around the clearing, as if weaving a basket with her feet. At first, Callisto was confused by the movements. They were so graceful, mesmerizing. But there was a malevolence to them. Callisto looked at Jupiter. He looked back at her intently, with real sadness in his eyes. I'm sorry, he murmured. You shouldn't be here, and you are. That's my fault. But Juno is powerful, especially in this mood. I don't know if I can protect you both. 
Callisto didn't respond. What could she say? He had ruined her life. But now, perhaps he could still protect the one thing that really mattered to her, if she sacrificed herself. Callisto swallowed hard, clutching her baby to her heart, as if she could imprint him on her chest. Perhaps if she'd listened to Diana, it wouldn't have come to this. And now, the ending was the same. She'd lose her baby. But at least she knew she'd fought for him. She handed Arcus to Jupiter. Take him to my father. Do whatever you can to keep him safe. Then she walked towards Juno and knelt on the ground. I'm yours, goddess, for whatever punishment you see fit. Behind her, she heard the crackle of Jupiter's lightning. Juno heard it too and stared past Callisto towards her husband for a moment, looking thoughtful. Then she shrugged and chuckled and turned her attention to Callisto. All right, girly, I'll take you, since you insist. But I don't want to kill you. Too boring. What about... Juno glanced around the clearing and into the shadows of the forest and chuckled again. Ah, yes, that will make for quite the tragedy. Then she danced once more, this time in a circle around Callisto. The wind rose and Callisto's muscles began to ache. The pain increased with the gusts of wind. Her body burned. It felt like it was ripping itself apart. She cried out in agony and she felt the forest around her crying out too. Then the crying stopped. The pain was gone. Callisto opened her eyes hesitantly. She was alone. Juno was gone, but she felt strange, heavy. She glanced down at her body and found that she was no longer a beautiful young woman. She was a bear. Callisto did her best to make peace with her new form and find a kind of happiness in her strong, lumbering body. She grew even closer to the rhythms of the forest. She threw herself into the rich, social world of the animal kingdom. But she never forgot about her son, the boy she'd chosen above all else, fought for, and lost anyway. Every day she mourned for him. Arcus, meanwhile, grew into a strapping youth at his grandfather's palace. He was told little about his parentage, just that his mother had disappeared into the forest long ago. Sometimes the mystery grated on him, but mostly he thought of other things because he was a cheerful boy and more inclined towards action than contemplation. So the years passed. But the games of the gods are long ones, and Juno wasn't done exacting her revenge. The vindictive queen of the gods was sitting on Mount Olympus, watching Callisto roam the woods. And then she saw young Arcus in those same woods with a hunting party. Perfect. She murmured, delighted. It was time for the final punishment for both mother and son. She brought the pair together, and then she settled in to watch from afar. 
Arcus loved the hunt, the smell of the loamy soil, the sound of a dog's snapping jaws, the breathless excitement of the chase. But hunting involved careful attention to detail, too. He'd followed the tracks of this elk for close to a mile. His hunting party was growing distant now, but he felt it in his bones. He had to keep going. This was going to be his best kill yet. Arcus reached a shadowy grove. The elk's footsteps seemed to stop. But when he looked up and saw a giant bear staring at him from the opposite tree line, he knew he was meant to be here. He'd never shot a bear before, never even seen one this large. This would be the kill of a lifetime. He pulled his bow back. Simultaneously, the bear began to rush towards him. Arcus felt strange, as if he knew the creature, but there wasn't time to think. He loosed the arrow. Suddenly, time stopped. The arrow, suspended in midair, Arcus felt as if his limbs were trapped in honey. The grove filled with crackling light and a soft, hot wind. And then... There was Jupiter, standing between Arcus and the bear, his hand grasping the arrow. Juno! Jupiter growled in frustration, looking from bear to Arcus. Arcus had never felt more confused in his short life. Clearly, this was Jupiter, but why had he stopped time to save a bear? Jupiter, rolling his eyes, gestured at the creature. Arcus, meet your mother, Callisto, and me, your father, while we're at it. Juno is clearly not done exacting her revenge for my infidelity. Arcus, his heart bounding up almost out of his throat, walked forward, past Jupiter, and to the bear. He placed his hand on her forehead and whispered, awed, Mother! Callisto gave a soft growl in response and nuzzled her son's shoulder. Jupiter scowled at the pair in frustration. This game needs to end, he muttered. Juno is trying to write the next great tragedy. Her antics are getting absurd. He glanced around the grove, frowning, then up through an opening in the canopy above towards the darkening sky. Suddenly, his face began to lighten. He looked back at Arcus and the bear, up at the sky once more. He was beginning to smile. The air around him started to crackle with light. I know where you'll be safe, both of you, and together as you always wanted, Callisto. Callisto gave a soft, plaintive growl and nuzzled Arcus once more. That was what she had always wanted, all she wanted. She would go anywhere to get it. But Arcus shifted his feet. He was a bit less sure of all this. Where do you want to send us, father? Jupiter coughed a bit nervously. The light around him faded momentarily. It's not perfect, not for a young man like you, who hasn't lived much life. But... Well, otherwise, Juno will never leave you in peace, and I'm afraid that's your cross to bear as humans. You can fight it, but really, you're at our mercy. 
Anyway, you'll be beautiful up there, admired forever, as stars. There was no more time to argue after that. Jupiter wasn't one for extended negotiations. He was impatient, reckless, sure of himself. The air filled with an extraordinary light. The wind began to swirl. Lightning snapped in little electric explosions. And then Callisto and Arcus disappeared from the grove and appeared in the sky as constellations. Jupiter waved up at them, pleased with himself. Ursa Major, he pronounced, smiling, testing out the name. And Ursa Minor. Then he laughed and disappeared, returning to Mount Olympus and his wife. In ancient Greek myths, humans have plenty of agency. There are heroes and kings who adventure. There are mothers, like Callisto, who refuse to give up their children. The gods don't always triumph over man, and their choices are fraught with mistakes, just like the choices of humans. But the stories always show how humanity can be battered and manipulated by the gods, just like the ancient peoples that told them were often battered by fate, nature, and the skies above. Stories about powerful, interfering gods helped make sense of a world that was often inexplicably cruel. Today, our lifespans are longer. We're less at the mercy of the elements, but life can still be full of experiences that are hard to explain or accept. So perhaps it's no surprise that some ancient stories about the influence of celestial powers live on. It's just we no longer talk about them as gods. We talk about them in reference to astrology. Take Jupiter, who can be self-righteous, impulsive, and lack boundaries. While few contemporary people believe he's a god, we still see his personality reflected in the astrological position he rules. These are the shadow qualities of the ninth house. This house also has positive aspects, just like the god Jupiter. Almost all of them have their roots in ancient stories like Callisto's. Juno is no different. The goddess's focus on guarding the marital contract she's made with Jupiter, whatever the cost, is reflected in the astrological influence of the asteroid Juno, which governs rule-bound commitments like marriage and business relationships. Diana fits the pattern as well. The goddess's associations are with femininity, like fertility and childbirth, but she can also be irrational, moody, and possessive, all qualities of the fourth astrological house, which, like Diana, is associated with the moon. Astrology carries on the legacy of the Greek gods. Still, the most resonant part of Callisto's story today may be Callisto herself, because she represents us the little humans who are often subject to forces greater than themselves, whether you see those forces as God, the stars, or even just chance. It's not easy to be human, but Ursa Major, gleaming in the sky, reminds us that even if we lose certain battles, there's beauty in the fight, because that may far outlast our personal struggles and inspire people for centuries to come. 
Thanks for listening to Tales. We'll be back next Wednesday with the second part of our summer solstice special on another constellation with an ancient backstory, Delphinus. Today, we know Delphinus as a small, crescent-shaped cluster of stars. But before that, according to the ancient Greeks, he was a dolphin on a dangerous mission. For more celestial stories, don't forget to listen to the rest of the Summer Solstice special on mythology, superstitions, and mythical monsters. And if you're curious about the astrological ideas we touched on in this episode, check out Horoscope Today, another Spotify original from Parcast, which gives a quick daily update on how the stars are affecting each sign of the zodiac. You can find Tales and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Tales is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Tales was written by Nora Battelle, with writing assistance by Greg Castro, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Adriana Gomez and Mickey Taylor. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new ParCast limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks, we're exposing the men who are far more flawed than fatherly, ruining anyone who stood in their way, even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify.